fig from the staff of Gethi, and a branch from his roots shall bear bread. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide his equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young god, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw with the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the witch, the witch child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the word of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal to the people, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Nolan. Well, hello, church family. It is great to be with you guys. Um, sorry, I know there are two of you who are very upset that I'm doing this right now, but I have psychosis, so just bear, bear with me. Um, I know a lot of you are uh, currently quarantining or traveling, uh, just especially you know, with a lot of us working remotely. Now we're able to see family uh, earlier than usual during the Christmas season, so for those of you who are tuning in online or for those of you who are with us for the first time, Online, It's great to have you with us. My name is Steve, lead pastor here. And so uh, for the Advent season, we are walking through Isaiah. So Isaiah is one of the major prophets in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament. So he ministered to the people of Israel about 700 years before Jesus came. And we're looking at Isaiah because Jesus didn't just appear on the stage of human history out of nowhere, but uh, Jesus was long foretold of by the prophets. And so as we look at what the prophets have to say, about who Jesus is, that'll help us get a clear picture of the very Lord that we follow. And for any of you who are here and who aren't Christians or checking things out, hopefully by seeing uh, what the Old Testament prophets say about Jesus, that will also help you see uh, who Jesus really is, because there's a lot of misconceptions out out there about who is this Jesus. And so um, what we're going to do tonight, so we're actually going to look at this passage two times. We'll do it once tonight, and then I'm going to come back to it, uh, because there's a different angle we can look at it through after Christmas as we head into the new year. So I'm not going to cover everything, but quite simply tonight, all I want us to do is, as Isaiah gives us this really beautiful window, like in a single shot, we can see uh, the character of the king, the the character of King Jesus. And as we look at that, I I want us to see how it impacts us in very earthy, very practical ways, uh, the hope that we have and and how we live as people. Because, uh, you know, one of the misconceptions among people is that religion, you know, Karl Marx initially said this is, you know, it's the opium of the people. It's just maybe a fantasy that people look to to feel good about themselves, to take care of their problems. And uh, not too long ago, my dad was talking with one of his neighbors and Christianity got brought up and she said, you know, just one of the things that I have a really hard time with when it comes to Christians 
is they don't seem to care about real world issues. They always seem to just care about, oh, you know, like eternal life, what's gonna happen later, but with everything that's going on now, like real world suffering, real world issues, they just don't really seem to, to care about it. And so, um, and that can bleed into the church as well, where we come in here and we sing the, the praises of Jesus on Sunday, right? But then when it comes to our money through Saturday life, most of our life uh, may not really look that different as a result of being in relationship with him. So, um, so for tonight, let's just look at, number one, what is the character of this king that Isaiah paints for us, okay? Uh, we know it's Jesus, uh, even though the people of Isaiah's day didn't exactly know who this would be. So what's the character of the king? And then number two, uh, how does this change how we live? Okay, so, so what's the character of the king that Isaiah points for us? And then number two, uh, how does this change how we live? Okay, so first, number one, uh, what is the character of the king? And uh, we, see, we see two main threads in this passage, and the first thread we see is the attitude that Jesus Christ has toward the poor. Uh, the attitude that Jesus Christ has toward the poor. And we see this in verse 4. So Isaiah writes, With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. So when you read he will judge the poor, what does that sound like? It sounds like Isaiah is saying, oh, he's going to condemn the poor. But what this really means is this king is going to make things just for the, for the needy. He's going to make things just for the powerless. Or put another way, he's saying he's going to make sure that those without means or influence or money are going to get fair treatment. Right? We know this wasn't just a problem in Isaiah's day, but it's true for every human, human civilization. It's one of the most intractable issues about any human society is you always have people who have money and influence and power, and so they often get fair treatment than those without money and influence and power. And even in our nation, which and I know we like to gripe about our government a lot, but like, our government is one of the best governments in world history when it comes to protecting human rights and giving justice to those who need it. Like, I, I hope you guys realize that and don't forget that when you start to get frustrated with government. I mean, it's one of the best civilizations we've ever lived in from that perspective. However, like, even within our nation, which is one of the best, in not-too-distant history, we have incredible injustices that we've seen. So it wasn't that long ago that our nation didn't just turn a blind eye to the enslavement of African Americans, but protected it, protected it. And then after that, protected segregation of society. And then even, even today, right, who, who has a voice when it comes to, so, so who's paying for uh, ads during election season, for example, right? It's not the poor. Who, who's paying lobbyists to influence congressmen and congresswomen? It's not the poor, it's those with, it's those with means, it's those with money, it's, it's those with connections. Because human, civiliza human civilizations are very good at, at creating systems where the poor and vulnerable always stay the poor and vulnerable. But it's saying not so with King Jesus. He, he's exactly the opposite. And thank goodness. And so Isaiah is saying when Jesus comes, so this will be Jesus' second advent, right? When he comes in the future to renew all things, he's going to make sure everybody receives just and fair treatment. And you see this in a couple ways. First in verse 5, you see he says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. So what's going on here with this imagery of belt? So this doesn't mean much to us because for most of you, you don't wear a belt because it actually keeps your, you know, your clothes together, your pants up. Most of you wear a belt so that your shoes have a matching friend. I think it's probably the reason why most of you wear a belt, right? But for Israelites, they, they had long, very flowy clothing. And so 
you wore a belt because if you wanted to do anything, if you wanted to actually take action, you had to tuck all your flowy garments into the belt so you could start moving and walking around without tripping all over the place. And so one of the things Isaiah is getting at here by saying righteousness shall be the belt of the waist of Jesus Christ is it says it's, he's saying Jesus is actually going to take action with respect to caring for the poor and bringing fair treatment for all. So he's not like a lot of leaders who may initially come out with a lofty promise or even good intentions, but then inevitably get swayed by the people who are paying their paycheck. No, he's actually going to bring complete justice and fair treatment for all. And then you have this wonderful imagery. We're not going to dwell on it, unfortunately, for too long, but where Isaiah talks about in verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. So the wolf and lamb, they don't go together currently, right? It's very dangerous for a lamb to be near a wolf, but in the new creation, the wolf and the lamb are actually going to get along so well they'll be roommates, essentially. You have other language here, like the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So the lion's going to become a vegetarian. You see a child playing with cobras. So this is utter tranquility, that, that Isaiah is painting here, because this is how good Jesus is. This is how effective Jesus is at, at bringing about um, peace in our society. And so that's the first thing we see, is Jesus' utter care and concern for the poor. Um, and Christmas even sheds more light on this, because we see that Jesus went so far to care for the poor and identify with the poor that he actually he wasn't born into an aristocratic family. He was born into a poor family. We looked at a lot of this last week. And also, who did he spend his time with? It wasn't those with connections. It wasn't those with influence. But he spent time with the poor, with the vulnerable, and cared for them. That's, that's the character of who Jesus is. And we'll come back to this in a minute on how this actually impacts how we live. But just want you guys to see this is the first thing. Jesus' incredible concern for the poor. Okay, so next, what do we see about the character of King Jesus? And what we see here is wisdom. That's, that's another key thread we see here. And so let's start in verse 2. Isaiah says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. So in the Old Testament, when the Spirit of the Lord uh, came upon somebody, it wasn't so much referring to salvation like, like the New Testament talks about, but the Spirit of the Lord would come upon a key figure, so such as a prophet or a king, to uniquely empower them to complete a task. So we saw in Samuel, we were in Samuel for most of this year, right, where the Spirit came upon David to empower him and make him successful for the purposes of God. And what was understood in the Old Testament was when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon somebody, that wasn't a guaranteed permanence of the Spirit resting upon somebody. So that's why in Psalm 51, you see David crying out to the Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. He's not saying, don't make me unsaved. He's saying, Please don't remove me from my office of king, is, is what, he get, what he's getting out there. And so when Isaiah says, the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, what he's saying is with this new king, the Spirit will be so close with this king, and the language of resting upon him implies a permanence of the Spirit being with this person in a way that it completely equips this person for the task at hand. And what's the task at hand? It's wisdom. So we see, continuing along in verse 2, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. So he has incredible insight and perception. But not just insight and perception, he keeps going, of counsel and of might. So might there, he's not just able to see things as they are, but he actually has the might or the ability to make it happen. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So why does he say fear of the Lord there? Because in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, the author writes, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So in other words, if you want to see reality for what it is, you need to have fear of the Lord. This means 
the Lord, he needs to be the one you have the most regard for. He needs to be the most real being in your life. Because when you fear or have a higher regard for how people think of you, for example, or have a higher regard for your own pleasure than you do God, this is going to lead to a lot of self, self-deception. Um, you're not going to even be able to know yourself correctly. It's going, to lead a lot to, it's going to lead to a lot of self-absorption and anxiety because God is not the most real person to you. But for King Jesus, the Lord will be the most real person to him. But not only that, his, he, he shall delight to do it, verse 3. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And then what's key is when he says, He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes, or, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. In other words, King Jesus is not going to be fooled by appearances. Because what wisdom is, it's the ability to see underneath appearances and see reality for what it is. And so I'm sure for you guys, most of the most stupid decisions you've made in your life are probably because you went based on appearances. He looked good. She looked good. It looked good, right? You weren't able to discern the substance underneath that person or that job or that relationship or whatever it may be. But Jesus isn't fooled by appearances. He makes the perfect decision every single time. And we'll get to, after, after Christmas, we'll look at a lot of the more practical implications for how we pursue wisdom, especially as we think about the next year. Um, but for now, as we think about Jesus being the most wise king and how that relates to Christmas, so what Christmas shows us and what Christmas sheds greater light on with respect to the wisdom of Jesus is, particularly what Christmas does is it shows how the, the wisdom of Christ or the wisdom of God compares to the wisdom of the world. So one of the things you see in the gospel accounts is, and this is in the gospel of Matthew, when when Jesus is born, you have these wise men that they come and they seek out Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, what do they do? They bow before Jesus and they worship him. And what's that showing? It's so yes, this did happen. It's a historical event, but it's also an illustration of this fact that the wisest of the wisdom of the world bows down before the wisdom of God. So the the wisdom of the world is foolishness compared to the wisdom of God. Or you flip that upside down, also how it works is the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And I don't think this is more clearly displayed or illustrated than in that manger with baby Jesus. And so here, here are two ways that we see that Jesus turns the wisdom of the world completely upside down on its head, and it looks like foolishness to the world. So the first way is how we think about success, okay, how we, th- how we think about success. So uh, do this thought experiment with me in here. I'm borrowing this illustration from Tim Keller. So imagine you're entering into a strategic planning meeting, and so what's strategic planning meaning? You get, you get the whiteboard, and you write at the top of the whiteboard the, the end goal, okay, what's, what's the result we're heading toward? And then you get the bright minds in the room and you say, okay, now let's plan what are steps A, B, C, D to get to Z, the end result. And so imagine that your end goal, like your purpose in life, is you want to be successful. So you bring in all these bright minds, closest friends, um, et cetera, and you say, I want to be successful. And they go, okay. And so you go, okay, here's what I want success to look like. Uh, 2,000 years from now, I want virtually everybody in the world to know my name. Okay, number one. Number two, here's how successful I want to be. I want roughly a quarter of the people in the world to center their entire lives upon my person and my teaching. 
And not only that, but number three, I want my teaching to be the most single important body of thought, thought in world history. And for two, or th- two to three of the world's largest civilizations to, to some degree or another, be built on my teaching. Is that, is that successful? Yeah, yeah, I think, that's, I think that's successful, right? So now imagine that one of the people you brought into the room says something like this in terms of how, how they think you should go about um, executing, the, the, getting, getting to the success point. And they say, okay, so from day, from day one, from the day you're born, make sure that you always live in out-of-the-way villages and never live in any type of major city or center of cultural influence. Okay, number two... Don't network at all, okay? So, like, don't get in any financial networks. Don't network economically. Don't get into the, you know, the networks of the arts. In fact, don't know anybody of any importance in any network. And then number three, just as your career is getting off the ground, get executed in disgrace. Like, would anybody in the room, if they're in the right mind, say that's what you need to do to achieve this kind of, achieve this kind of success? Of course not. But that's what Jesus did. And it's through Jesus doing that that he actually accomplished what he did. And it's through Jesus doing that is why any of you who are in here who follow Jesus are where you're at now. Why? Because the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. And God's wisdom wins. Every time. So first we we see it with respect to success and how Jesus went about... uh, being known in the world, but more importantly than that, we see how God's wisdom works when it comes to how he actually saves us. And here's what I mean by that. So the more I talk with people, this isn't just rhetoric, I'm being serious. The more I talk with people both inside the church um, and outside the church is when we think about God, or even when we think about Christianity, we tend to go to one of two poles. So on the one pole is you have the religion of wrath or the God of wrath. And this makes sense to a lot of people because in the religion of wrath, or you could call it the Santa Claus religion, you have the, you have the bad people. Okay? It's, very, it's very black and white, very binary, so you have the bad people. Bad people get judgment. Bad people get coal in their stocking. Bad people get wrath. All right, and then you have the good people. And, and the good people are, you know, if you, if you do enough things, then you have the ultimate bar exam at the end of your life. And if you've done enough good things, then you're accepted into God's family. Okay, religion of wrath. The other poll you have is the religion of acceptance. So in this religion, you just have God who's a kind of a benevolent grandfather who always smiles at you and he never contradicts your desires because, you know, why would you tell somebody like something they feel could actually be misplaced, and he doesn't judge anybody, because who wants judgment? He's just a God of acceptance, and what you need to do is decide what's right or wrong for you, and don't you dare tell anybody else what's right or wrong for them, because after all, God accepts everybody as they are, so you need to act as God does, and you don't, don't import this, you know, religion of wrath, religion of judgment. So you have this religion of wrath, religion of acceptance, is how most people view things in the world, and, but what Christmas shows us, and I'm so glad that it does, and the entire testimony of the scriptures is God is neither the religion, a religion of wrath or of acceptance. And here's one of the reasons why I'm so glad he's not, because both of those religions, while they look very different on the surface, they're both a religion of the self. Okay, so in religion of wrath or Santa Claus religion, it's you have to do good, right? You have to be moral. You have to be brave. You, you have to be courageous. And at the end of your life, you better hope you've done enough good things 
to merit God's love for you because that is the ultimate exam that you have to pass, you know, whether or not you're going to heaven or hell. It's all about you. But same thing with the religion of acceptance because you're the one who has to decide what's right or wrong. Hey, you have to create your own self, which as we're seeing in our current culture is completely crushing. It's completely exhausting. You always need other people to affirm you because you never know if you're doing enough. And in both religions, you get no help from the outside okay? because they're fundamentally about you instead of what God is doing for you. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, and Isaiah sees this, we'll see it in a second, is a religion of grace. And grace is the beautiful combination of justice and compassion. And here's how we see it. So this, this is amazing. I, I didn't see this until I studied this passage uh, for the first time in preparation for tonight. So verse 1, Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his root shall bear fruit. So Isaiah is saying this future king, he's going to be a shoot from the stump of Jesse. So Jesse was the father of King David. And so a shoot is something that comes out of the stump. So in other words, he's going to come out of the stump of Jesse or he's going to be a descendant of Jesse. Right? He's going to be a human in the line of Jesse. But then do you see what he says in verse 10? He's talking about the same king. In that day, the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples. So the root of Jesse means he's the origin of Jesse. Right? Or he's the ancestor of Jesse. So the question you have to be asking is, how can somebody be both shoot and root? How can somebody be both descendant of Jesse and the ancestor of Jesse? And the answer is, as impossible as it is, and as nuts as it is in the eyes of the world, is the reason this king is the origin of Jesse is because he's God. But the reason why he's also the shoot of Jesse is because he's God come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ, who's a human being. So he's God and man. And here's the difference that this makes. Okay, this doesn't just confound the, the wisdom of the world, but this is one of the most life-changing things in the world when you grasp this. Because what happens if, if Jesus Christ is only the root, if he's only God? Okay, now you have a God who's just, now you, now you have a God who's powerful, yes. But how do you know if he really cares? How do you know if he's really going to be by your side when it matters, when it really counts? How do you know, how do you know if you have a God who can actually sympathize with you? Or if you have a God who's only the shoot, if he's only human... Right? So now you have a God who, yes, he has sympathy, now, now he gives you companionship, but he lacks the power to do what you most need to do. If God is only the shoot, or if Jesus is only a human, then you have no hope for full forgiveness. You have no hope for actual transformation. You, you have no hope that your life isn't going to end in sadness or despair. You have hope for none of these things. You, you don't have hope to face the inevitable illness or, or death that's going to come into your life. But if Jesus is both shoot and root, if he's both human and God, now you have something priceless. Now you have somebody, someone, unbelievable. Because by Jesus being God and coming into the world and coming into the world and going to the cross, taking God's justice and wrath in your place on the cross, now you have what Paul says in Romans 3 where God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly, of sinners. who's you and me and every single person in this room. And so now, now you have everything. You have a God who's, who actually knows what it's like to be tempted. 
You have a God who actually knows what it's like to feel uncertain or to feel alone. But not only that, because he's God, you actually have a God who's with you, whether it's in your hopelessness or your sorrow, your uncertainty, who actually has the means as the maker and creator of heaven and earth to do what needs to be done in your life. And he will never, ever disappoint you because he's God and man. And that's what Christmas shows us. There was, there was glory in that manger. There was treasure in that manger, and yet nobody saw it. Because the wisdom of God is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And so, here's what I want for us as we, as we look at the character of King Jesus. Um, first and foremost, if anybody is worshiping with us this evening, I, I want you to, to be very clear that fundamentally Christianity is not a moral program, uh, but it's about receiving with the open hands of faith where you bring nothing to the table and say, just God, please receive me for what Jesus Christ has done for me. That's first and foremost what Christianity is. But out of that, when you see the character of this king, and, and I hope as you've, been, as you've been able to meditate just for the last 25 minutes or so, the picture Isaiah has painted for us about the beauty of King Jesus, it goes, it takes your adoration and then moves it into action. And so here's two simple areas that this can do for us as we head into Christmas and as we head into next year. And the first thing is, is we have to care about the poor. I mean, by God not just speaking and using words that he cares, but actually identifying, mean, it's so clear from how he was born to who he spent his entire life with, he cares so much about the poor and the vulnerable. And we as a church, we need to do it, not just because it's the cool thing to do in certain social circles, but because it matters deeply to God. This isn't a political issue. This is what God cares about. It's very much a gospel issue. And so my charge to you is just very, right now, because often when it comes to this subject, it's so massive, but just, so just very simple. We have some great leaders in our church, and I, I mentioned this at our member gathering uh, back in late October, who are developing an external-facing mercy program to care for the vulnerable in our city. And as a small church, as a new church, we can't do everything, but we need to do something because of how much it matters to God. And so for, throughout this Christmas season, will you please just add to your, when you go before God and you pray, just ask for God to change your heart toward how you view the poor, how you view the vulnerable, and going so far as to help you actually take action with our church next year when we begin to serve the vulnerable in our community. And I say that because, especially in our culture, um, where just work is so big to everything we do here. I, I know you guys work long hours. Um, but part of what this is going to require of us is just how we reframe how we work and how we view our free time. Because serving the vulnerable, it always requires sacrifice. You most clearly seen with the cross, with what Jesus Christ did for us. And so as a church, if, if we are in union with the one who went to the cross, we, we need to rearrange our, our schedules and our attitudes. So, you know, whether that's once a week, whether that's once a quarter, we're actually doing something with our hands to serve, serve the vulnerable and the poor because it matters to Jesus. And number two, uh, how the character of King Jesus impacts us and how we live in very real ways is how we think about success. Uh, particularly living in a city like D.C. And so th this was uh, just a couple weeks ago. I was talking with a, a good friend of mine. He's a Christian, and I, I was catching up. I hadn't seen him. He comes from a Christian family. 
And I just asked him, I said, oh, hey, you know, how's, how's your brother? I haven't talked with him in a while, seen him in a while. And my friend said, oh, he, he's doing great. He's so successful. And I said, oh, that, that's awesome. You know, so what's going on? He said, well, he's, he was making well over six figures now. He's about to buy a home and a really nice car. And he's climbed up like really high in his career. He's, he's a big leader now, teaching a lot of people. I was like, you know, that, that's amazing. And, and so I was, and we just, we, you know, we kept talking. And I said, oh, just, you know, how, how's he doing with, um, with, with following Jesus? You know, what, what church is he in now, now that he's living in it? in this state, and my friend goes, oh, yeah, I don't really, I don't really know, um, he hasn't mentioned Jesus in a long time, and, you know, I know, like, because he's working all the time, he, he, he works almost all day, you know, all day Saturday, all, all day Sunday, and I don't think he's really involved in a church, and Jesus really has much of a bearing, you know, in his life right now, and I, I share that story not to poo-poo on people who are successful or for uh, Christians who, you know, who, who work a lot and work well. Like we, we need, hopefully it's very clear to you guys in this church, like I, I want you guys to thrive in your careers. I want you guys to be successful. We need Christians who are in private and public institutions and, and who are leaders of other people. But here's the point of that story is you see how success was defined in that situation. Oh, he's successful because this is what's going on in his career. And that dichotomy with what was going on in his, in, his, in his life with Christ. And so just in love, can I say to you, as we look at the incarnation and how Jesus lived his life, it would be such a tragedy for your whole life as you think about, am I a successful person? Am I valuable? The primary grid through which you're viewing that is how many people recognize you in your field? What's your bank account? You know, what's the number in your bank account? Um, how, how comfortable or pleasurable a life, of a life do you have? That would be such a tragedy. And so as you guys work hard in your career, and I hope you do, I hope you, more than that, define success by how much are you treasuring Jesus? And then out of that, as you treasure Jesus, how much do you actually invest in other people in your church and people who are outside the church? Because Jesus says, so Mark, Mark 10 is one of these places it's human beings, it's eternal souls. That's the only investment you can make that won't perish, spoil, or fade. And so within this church family, I know for, some, you know, I know for uh, some of you, maybe you don't feel that connected in this church, or yeah, there's people in this church, you don't, they don't quite get you, you don't quite get them, but I encourage you to continue to invest in them because God promises you to, to return that investment 100-fold is what Jesus says in Mark 10. And then with those outside of, with those outside of the church, um, People are exhausting themselves, defining success and chasing success as the world defines it. And what they need to see is the king on high who came into that manger 2,000 years ago that looked incredibly ordinary, but who makes all the difference in the world. So as we move forward this Advent season, let's, let's actually change our heart toward the poor and define success and pursue success as Jesus uh, defines it as well. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you so much for this lucid picture that Isaiah gives us of King Jesus. Um, thank you so much that this is who Jesus is, even though it's incredibly challenging, especially as we think about uh, how it changes our lives, Lord. And so I pray that we as a church won't just be known for being Christians as a label or uh, being known for people who, you know, believe in Jesus with our mouths, but it doesn't actually change things with how we work and how we care for others who don't have much to offer us in return. And so 
as we move into Christmas and to next year, just uh, help us to redefine success as Jesus defines it and help us to care for those who uh, don't offer much, um, offer as much sauce in return just as you first did for us. Uh, thank you for these things and lift our hearts as we finish out this worship service. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.